Life Audio. Before we jump into today's episode, I just wanted to express my sincere thanks for listening and to let you know that I host three shows on the Life Audio Podcast Network. I'd love to invite you to listen to all three. The Chapter a Day Audio Bible is a daily reading of one chapter of Scripture, followed by a time of prayer related to each day's passage. New episodes are released each day of the week. Daily Devotions with Pastor John is another daily show where I share some encouraging thoughts and exposition on some of my favorite passages from the Bible. I release this show each day as a spiritual pick-me-up that also has the potential to foster spiritual maturity. Dwell on These Things is a long-form weekly show where we take an in-depth look at God's Word and learn more about how all Scripture is pointing our hearts toward Jesus. New episodes are released on Mondays, and sometimes I include a second bonus episode on Thursdays. As always, thanks for listening to each of my podcasts, the Chapter a Day Audio Bible, Daily Devotions with Pastor John, and Dwell on These Things. And after a quick word from our sponsors, we'll jump into today's episode. Hello, folks. My name is Derek Greer, and I'm reaching out to fellow pastors and church leaders just like you to join me and other Christian leaders and organizations throughout the nation as we come together on June 8th and 9th for National Unity Weekend. Together, we will show the love of Jesus as we serve our communities on Saturday, June 8th, and then preach from a shared text on Sunday, June 9th. To register, go to unityweekend.com. That's unityweekend.com to join us as we unite the church and unite the nation. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. But it's good to see everybody this morning. Last week, we started a new series in the Gospel of Mark. And so we're still in chapter one today. We're continuing our look at at the Gospel of Mark. And we'll be looking at this book for quite a while. But today, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 20. And we'll be talking about the fact that Jesus will completely turn your life around. And if you would, take your Bibles and turn there with me. Mark chapter one, starting with verse 12. And this is what we read in the passage. It says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. 
And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to spend some time together now, taking a look at it, studying it, learning from it, allowing your, your word to inform how we think and believe and live. And we're just so grateful, Father, that your word points us to your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you prepare our minds and prepare our hearts to understand these truths as your Holy Spirit is making these truths clear to us. And we're just so grateful, Lord, to be able to spend some time reading your word and just being immersed in the truth that your word contains. So we thank you, Lord, for this privilege. We commit this time to you now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I'm preaching, maybe you've noticed this, maybe you haven't noticed this, but when I'm preaching, one of the things that I attempt to do, I don't always succeed at this, but one of the things I attempt to do is to make good eye contact. That's one of the things that I, I attempt to do. So have you noticed that? Like, as I try, there are two spots. If you ever want to not be noticed in this room, there are two spots that you will succeed at not being noticed. Right over here on this side, because for some reason... My peripheral vision, I never like seemed to, to do that. So you guys are safe, and you guys are safe over here. Same, same thing. I don't seem to tilt my head just enough to see those directions. I have, I have one friend who, when he preaches, he admitted to me, he said, you know what, I don't look at the congregation when I preach. I said, well, where do you look? And he said, I literally look at the back wall over everybody's head because he said it makes him nervous when he has to look at the faces of those that he's speaking to. So he primarily looks at the back wall over the heads of, of whoever's in the room that he's speaking in. That would not work for me because one of the things that I do when I'm speaking is I'm trying to read your faces. I'm trying to read and perceive from just your expressions if what I'm saying is actually being communicated clearly or if I need to rephrase what I'm saying, or something of that nature, or if I just need to pause on a thought for just a moment. Now, generally speaking, that works well for me. Generally speaking, I tend to like that. And, uh, but sometimes it also becomes very clear to me that there are people in certain contexts that I've been speaking in, that, and sometimes even here, that aren't really interested in what I have to say. They're not really interested in the teaching of Scripture. They aren't really interested in paying careful attention as the, as the word's being proclaimed. And so sometimes that gets communicated through body language, right? So sometimes you notice that because people are maybe staring at their phones. And I'm thinking, they probably don't think I can see that. I totally see it, right? I totally see it. Um, sometimes people will be staring out the windows. Sometimes people will fall asleep. You know, I, I've had that happen. Uh, but I still remember when I was a relatively new pastor. I was brand new at doing this sort of thing. And I remember catching a glimpse of someone who was sitting in the back of the room at the church that I was serving at at the time. And uh, he had a scowl on his face, and he had his arms crossed, and the entire time he looked like he was going to pounce. He just looked like he was just waiting for somebody to completely set him off. He was visibly angry, and, um, and I could tell he didn't want to be there. And I knew a little bit about his backstory, so I knew some of what was going on, that this wasn't an isolated thing, but he, he had no faith in Jesus whatsoever. He was also very angry about the fact 
that his fiancée had recently become a believer in Jesus Christ, and he resented the fact that she was growing more and more involved in the ministry of the local church, and he was bothered about what that was going to mean for their life together. But somehow she persuaded him to be there that Sunday, and he was there, but he wasn't happy about it. And I'll admit, it was a little awkward to preach in that context, you know, looking and, and seeing somebody who's just like so, so angry and scowling at me the, the entire time. But in time, his attitude drastically changed. It wasn't that day, but in time, over the course of the next few months, his attitude drastically changed. And what ended up happening is very, very interesting. And I find this amazing how God rescues and redeems even those who aren't looking for him, Right? A few months later, after reading scripture that had been sent to him in the mail, so someone sent him scripture in the mail, and he actually took the time to read it, he came to faith in Jesus Christ in his home after reading the scripture that someone had mailed to him. And he went from hating Jesus, and he went from resenting the church to loving Jesus and becoming very actively involved in church ministry. And that was more than 15 years ago, and to this day, he still actively involved in the ministry of that local church. And it's been a wonderful thing to see. And I bring that up because when you look at Scripture and you see the different things that are revealed in the work of God as it's revealed in Scripture, Jesus, he delights to radically transform our lives. He loves to do that. He does it over and over again. And when we're reading the Gospels, we have the opportunity to see him do that in many, many contexts. He, loved to take, he loves to take a life that's, that's headed in one direction and then steer it down a brand new path. And there's example after example after example in the Gospels in particular of him doing that. And we see that illustrated in a few different ways when we look at the portion of Mark's Gospel that we just read together, and we'll revisit this a piece at a time. But before we get to see the transformation that Jesus is about to accomplish in the lives of several people, we're shown a glimpse of some of the difficult things that Jesus had to endure first. And Mark gives us small glimpses. It's the shortest of the four Gospels. And so some of the things Mark says, he says very succinctly and very briefly, while the other Gospels elaborate on these things. So I'm going to reference a few things that are referenced elsewhere in the Gospels. But Mark gives us a very brief glimpse of some of the things that happen in this early part of Christ's ministry. And when you look at verses 12 and 13... He says this, he says, the Spirit immediately drove him, so the him being referenced here is Jesus, so the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, when you read those statements, does that arouse your curiosity? You're like, don't, don't you find yourself saying, like, I want to know more about this. Like, tell me more about what was going on here. Well, I believe that the key to understanding the grand narrative of Scripture is to be asking yourself, wherever you are in the Bible, how is this trying to point me to Jesus? Wherever you are in Scripture, ask that question. It's a very useful, very practical question. If you want to understand this grand narrative that goes throughout Scripture, every section of the Bible, ask that question. How is this trying to point me to Jesus, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament? Ask it. And if you've ever read through the books of Exodus uh, and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, um, you'll, you've certainly read about the 40-year journey that the people of Israel took when they were freed from bondage in Egypt and they were on their way to the Promised Land. 
you've come across that, you've read that, you've heard about that, maybe you've even seen movies about that, but what does that even have to do with Jesus? How is that trying to point our hearts to Jesus? Well, during that 40-year journey, as the people of Israel are on this exodus, on this journey toward the promised land, they were miraculously led by God. You have the Lord leading them on this journey. You have a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire appearing in the sky, showing them where to go, directing where they should go, when they should stay put, when they should move along. We also know from those scriptures that they were miraculously protected from the sting of serpents. They, um, their clothing didn't wear out. Wouldn't that be nice? Sometimes I like to convince myself that my clothing hasn't worn out because I don't really like to clothing, you know, do clothing shopping and Sometimes people will be like, hey, maybe it's time you upgrade that. Maybe. Their clothing didn't wear out. Food in the form of of manna, food in the form of quail would drop from the sky at God's direction. Water was miraculously given to them to satisfy their thirst. You have all these sorts of things being described to us when we look through the, the first few books of the Old Testament. And you see that when the people of Israel, the children of Israel, are on this journey, you could see that this was a time of testing for them. This was a time that kind of showed where their faith really was. This was a time that showed who they really trusted, what they really trusted, what they believed, what they thought would produce a good life. And you could see that many, most, in that initial generation, you basically point to two people that, that this doesn't apply to, I guess, but many in this initial generation, they failed that test of faith. See Joshua and Caleb being the only two of that initial generation that actually get to enter into the promised land, but the rest, they don't, they don't enter into the promised land. They die in the wilderness because they spend that time grumbling against God. They, you know, if they, they feel hungry, they grumble against Him. If He provides food for them, they grumble against Him because it's not what they wanted to eat. They daydream about what their life was like when they were in bondage in Egypt, and they complain about just this journey that God is bringing them on, the Lord invites them to trust Him, and they say, no, we, we, we would rather trust the, the things that we could just see with our own eyes, even though the Lord was miraculously revealing all sorts of things to them. And they just rejected that opportunity to trust the Lord in the midst of an unfamiliar circumstance. And so that was their journey. That's what it was like. That's what it was characterized. And you even have Moses as he's, as he's leading the people of Israel, as he's leading the children of Israel, he gets to a point in the midst of this. Now, imagine, I don't know how hard your job is. I know some of you have very, very difficult jobs, and probably sometimes your job is discouraging, but do you ever say to yourself when you wake up in the morning, I would rather die than go to work today? Is it that bad? You don't have to say out loud, maybe it is that bad. I have no idea. But Moses got to a point where he was like, I would rather die than lead these people for one more minute. Like, Lord, would you, like, could I just go now? I would rather die than have to do this. It wasn't very pleasant because you have a group of people that should be praising God for the miraculous ways that he's delivered them and the promises that he's given them and the ways he's demonstrating his presence with them. But instead, over and over and over again, they grumble and over and over and over, they give in to the lies and the deception of Satan. They believe a lie. They believe falsehood. And so that first generation, they die in the wilderness and the promised land was given to their children. They could have experienced it themselves you know, within a couple weeks of being released from Egypt. They wouldn't take the land. They didn't believe that the Lord would give it to them, and so they wandered for 40 years, and then it was given to their children. And then here we're at this portion of Scripture in Mark chapter 1 that talks about things that are happening at the outset of Jesus' ministry, and he's presented with a similar test. The Holy Spirit, we're told here, 
The Holy Spirit, he led Jesus out into the wilderness where for 40 days Jesus fasted from eating food while Satan was tempting him. Satan tempted Jesus. When you, you, you see these details, by the way, in Matthew chapter 4, if you want to do some post-sermon homework, you could follow up there. But you have uh, Satan tempting Jesus to try and find satisfaction through earthly things. And by the way, isn't that what Satan tries to do to you and to me as well? He tells you that your heart's going to be satisfied through earthly things, right? And so he tries to tempt Jesus with, with food, Well, food, you'd say, all right, food's not a bad thing, but, you know, Satan's been tempting people with food for a good long time, hasn't he? And uh, if Satan tells me to eat something, you know, one of the lessons you learn from Scripture, if Satan tells you to eat it, don't eat it, right? Don't eat it. Don't eat it. And so you have Satan tempting him with things like food, but then Satan also tries to tempt him with things like what? Like boastfulness or pride or arrogance, and you have Jesus experiencing this temptation. It was real temptation. He's also in a weakened physical state because he's, he's intentionally fasting from eating, and yet he resists these temptations as they come over and over and over again, and Satan lays it on thick, and Christ resists the temptation. And you know what Jesus did? Now, you have to look at, at Matthew's gospel to see these details and specifics, but when Jesus was being tempted by Satan... Jesus quoted from the book of Deuteronomy to Satan. He kept quoting from the book of Deuteronomy to him. Satan would tempt him, and then Jesus would respond with Scripture. Satan would tempt him again. Jesus would respond with Scripture. And I don't think it's accidental. I'm certain it's not accidental that Jesus was quoting from Deuteronomy in the midst of that context because these were the very passages that were communicated to that generation of the children of Israel that were wandering in the wilderness, that 40-year wandering. These were the things that were communicated to them. And here you have Jesus quoting those very scriptures. He's quoting those things to Satan. He's saying, you know what? I'm I'm not going to give in to this. You know, you've been doing this to people for generations. You've been lying and deceiving and confusing people and causing them to believe falsehood and thinking they're going to find satisfaction for their life and and satisfaction for their soul through earthly or boastful or prideful things. And he says, I don't buy it. And he quotes Scripture to him over and over again. He purposely quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Scriptures that were given initially to the children of Israel while they were in the midst of that Exodus journey. And when Satan could not succeed in tempting Jesus to veer from his divinely orchestrated mission, the Scripture tells us that that Satan left him, and the angels ministered to Jesus while Jesus was in that physically weakened state. But basically, what we see Jesus do here, Jesus does, you know, keep in mind who he is, Jesus the Messiah, right? Jesus the Messiah does what the people of Israel were unable to do for themselves. He endured Satan's schemes. He endured Satan's temptations in the wilderness, and he demonstrated his own righteousness. And you see, in the, in the work Jesus is doing here, in the way he goes about it, he trusts in the Spirit's leading because the Spirit leads him into the wilderness, and Jesus also has complete confidence in the Father's plan, knowing that the Father's plan is perfect. And so Mark begins the section that we're looking at today by giving us that brief glimpse showing us some of the hardship that Jesus endured, but this test that he clearly passes. And then when you get to verses 14 and 15 of Mark chapter 1, we're told this, 
So the story continues, and it says, now after John was arrested, so that's a reference to John the Baptist, it says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. By the way, verse 15 of Mark chapter 1 is one of my absolute favorite portions of Scripture because there's such a practical application of it. It's something that I quote to myself quite regularly. The time is fulfilled, and, and it says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So here you have Jesus having completed this initial test. He now visits the town of Galilee, and he begins making the message of the gospel known. Scripture tells us he starts telling people the message of the gospel. He starts proclaiming that. And as he speaks to the people, he makes sure that they understood that that there was no better day than today to trust and experience the kind of transformation that ultimately the Holy Spirit desires to foster in us right now. Saying, today's the day, right? Don't waste any time, right? He's saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Not soon, not eventually, today. This is what he's encouraging the people to do, to understand what the work that God wanted to do in their lives. Jesus told them the time is fulfilled. So here, here he is in their midst. The long-promised day of his arrival had come, the day that they had eagerly anticipated ever since the time when they read the, the words of the prophets of, uh, in, throughout the course of the Old Testament. You know, this day has now arrived. The time has arrived. The time is fulfilled. The time has come. There he is, the Messiah, in their midst, the one that the generations prior had been saying, oh, I hope he comes in our lifetime. Hope he comes in our lifetime. By the way, isn't it interesting how we're in the same spot? I hope he returns in our lifetime. I hope he comes back in our lifetime. I really do. Don't you? I hope he comes back. You know, it's so funny. This is an aside. I'll come back to what I'm saying in just a second. But for a long time in my life, I had this long list of things. I was like, I hope I get to do this before I die. And I hope I get to do this before I die. And I hope I got to do this before I die. Well, I'm 47 years old, and apparently I didn't make my list long enough because the things that were on my list, I ran out of stuff on my list. It's done now, right? Other than the grandchildren part. I guess I want to be a grandpa someday, all right? That, that, but that's like the finale, right? And so I, I, I look at this, for me, is the, the list, not the finale of like anything I'll ever do in my life. Sorry if I just weirded everybody out by saying that. Um, but, but here's the thing. I can tell you, after having completed, essentially, the list that I put together at a younger season of life, there, and being on the other side of things that used to seem like very, very important ambitions to me, I look at that stuff and I think, yeah, none of the, having, being on the other side of that, I realize it doesn't compare to the thought of Christ returning, seeing him face to face and getting to experience that. There's no earthly thing that I look at and I'm like, yeah, that would be better than just experiencing the fulfillment of these long-awaited promises of Christ. And so we find ourselves in the same spot that uh, these, these, you know, this generation that Jesus is speaking to found themselves in the sense that many would say, yeah, they had waited their whole life for the the arrival of the Messiah. Well, here he is, and he says, look, the time is fulfilled. It's now. Here I am. And some received him and some did not, but he's saying the time is fulfilled. It's the day. And by God's grace, I hope that we're a generation that gets to experience that during the course of our earthly life. But Jesus, as he's speaking these things to this group of people, he tells the people, this is what you're to do. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. 
Repent and believe in the gospel. That's such a beautiful statement, isn't it? Repent and believe in the gospel. I hope it's something that we've thought of as well. But if you're reading those words as you open the scriptures and look at these things, or if you're just hearing me say these things as I quote them, and you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus Christ, what Jesus is doing for us here is he's inviting every single one of us to turn away from our false beliefs and to begin trusting the good news of the abundant and eternal life that Jesus offers us. It's an abundant and eternal life that can only be found through him. Now, if you do have a relationship with Jesus, the message is the same to you, and it's just as relevant to you as it was the day you first believed in him. Repent and believe in the gospel. Some people look at that and they think, you know, that was a great way to get my relationship with the Lord started, and they think that that's just for when our faith in Christ begins. But the way that's written, that's not written in such a way that it's meant to be some sort of throwaway statement. That's something that you and I are to look at and say, you know what, this is the ideal summary of how I'm being called to just do this my entire life, my entire life, repent and believe in the gospel. I mean, is there not a day of your life and a day of my life that we've been called to to identify false beliefs and identify things that don't belong in our head and identify patterns and practices that we've adopted that are really just the fruit of being deceived by Satan or being deceived by our old nature and looking at those things and saying, you know, I need to repent of these things. And you know what? Repentance sounds really scary to people. I think in some respects, some people look at that and say, that's the scariest word in the Bible. But it's not, it's not. It's a welcomed and wonderful thing when the Lord invites us to say, look, you're taking your life in this direction. I'm telling you, change your mind and turn your direction this way toward me instead of away from me. And that's something that I need to chew on every day. It's something that you need to chew on every day as well. I need to replace false beliefs that creep into my heart, and I need to believe the gospel in fresh ways. Like I'm a new believer. Like I'm somebody that never says, you know what, somehow I'm beyond that. Somehow I'm beyond the gospel. We're never beyond the gospel. We need to apply the truth of the gospel to our lives every day. And if I notice false beliefs creeping into my mind or actions creeping into my life that don't belong there, just as Jesus says, you know, today's the day. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's not, a, it's not just about, you know, some day in the past. It's about today. And none of us, no matter how long we've known Jesus Christ, are beyond that being an important thing. When I notice sin in my life that's the fruit of false beliefs that I think are going to somehow satisfy my soul, I'm called to turn away from those lies. I'm called to to actually look to Christ where I will find true peace and true hope, and I need to do this every single day because we're bombarded with lies all the time. When you and I look around us, we think about what this culture throws in our direction. We think about the messaging that we're so easily able to buy into. We're bombarded with lies all the time. We're encouraged to trust circumstances like our circumstances are going to bring us eternal peace. Your circumstances might be ideal today and change tomorrow, but that's not where joy is found. Joy is not found in ideal earthly circumstances. Some people spend their life trusting governments. Well, in 47 years, one thing I've learned is can't trust that, right? And I can understand if there's a vacancy or a void in somebody's heart or life for God, they will look at a power like a government and say, well, maybe the government can fill that void. Well, if you want to spend your life trusting a government, have fun. But I promise you they will let you down. 
And I'm saying that as a very patriotic man who is so grateful for our country and so grateful that I have the privilege to live here, but my ultimate faith is not in a government. I want to do my best to be someone that's salt and light in the midst of the culture that the Lord's blessed us to be part of, but my faith is in Christ, not in, not in governments, not in politicians, not in medicines, not in ambitions, not in accolades, not in acquisitions, but aren't these the categories of things that we're told to trust in? that somehow our life will find some level of satisfaction. If we, just, if we just find joy or delight in one of these things, we're promised that we'll find the good life through the prominence that we achieve in this world or the earthly riches that somehow we acquire. And isn't that what Satan was trying to uh, tempt Jesus with? You know, he's saying, you know, if you, if you, just, if you just give in to these things, Satan, Satan was saying, you know, I have, the, I have the capacity to give this to you. I can give you this. I could give you this. Why don't you just take it? Just take the easy way out. Don't complete the mission that you're here to complete. Do this. Take the easy way out, right? But if we even place one ounce of faith in something that can be taken away from us, again, we come back to the Scripture where we we need to be reminded to repent and come back to believing the gospel straight away. Once again. Because the gospel teaches us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that Satan is a liar. And the gospel assures us that we have hope beyond our circumstances. The gospel promises us a new name and a place in God's eternal family and divine kingdom. The gospel assures us that we're cleansed of our sin and we're cleansed of our shame. And I think that that's a beautiful thing to recognize. You know, when you think about the the manner in which Christ was crucified, you know, most paintings or portraits that you see of his crucifixion, there'll be a loincloth or something like that. Uh, for modesty, but that's not really how they let him experience this. They stripped him naked in front of everybody, and they exposed him so that he would experience shame. They wanted that, that to be the most shameful and painful, torturous way that a person could die. And you look at that, and you're like, why did Jesus endure that? Well, he endured that so that you and I not only are, are forgiven of our sin, but we're forgiven of our shame. Like, he takes our shame upon himself. And there are so many people that spend their lives in this world thinking they have to bear their shame because they goof something up. And here's the thing. Yes, you did goof things up. We've all goofed things up. There's nobody that makes it through this earth perfect. There's nobody that makes it through mistake-free other than Jesus. And because he's the only one that could do that, he says, here, I will take your shame upon myself. And so if you're spending your life bearing that shame, thinking that that's something that you've been called to bear for the rest of your life, I would highly encourage you to repent of that and believe in the gospel, because the gospel says Christ took your shame. He took your shame upon himself. He didn't endure that for no reason. He endured that so that you would receive the benefit of it. And the gospel teaches that when he shed his blood on the cross for us, he paid for our sin to be remitted, right? He took it upon himself. Gospel assures us that just as Jesus rose from the grave, that we too will experience the resurrection to new life as we trust in him, as we're united to him in faith. Again, repent and believe in the gospel. That's what the gospel teaches. That's our daily mission. That's something we need to preach to our hearts regularly because we're very easily persuaded to believe the exact opposite of what the Bible actually teaches. Do you believe you're beyond forgiveness? Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel says you can be forgiven through Christ. Do you believe that you have to carry that load of shame and embarrassment that you've been carrying? Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus took it for you, and he delighted to do that. Scripture tells us for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and everything that went with that. 
And the joy set before him was the idea of you being united to him by faith and part of his kingdom forever, completely cleansed of your sin and unrighteousness, holy and blameless in his sight for all eternity. And it's our mission to believe that and to live that out in the midst of this world. And then you have Jesus introducing himself to a variety of people and basically saying, I know you thought your life was going to look this way. Let me invite you to have a brand new life and a brand new perspective. When you look at verse 16 of Mark chapter 1, it starts to tell us about what Jesus did as he's going along preaching. It says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon. This Simon that's being referenced here, what's his nickname? It's Peter, right? The main source for this gospel. So imagine being Peter telling Mark, hey, write this down. Let me tell you about when I, when I met Jesus. So passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, so Simon Peter, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So these are things taking place here. It's kind of amazing to look at. You know, when you were a child, what did you intend to do as a career? These guys intended, you know, to be fishermen. What did you intend to do as a career? I know when I was a... Well, let me even say this. Did you get to do it? Just nod your head. Did you get to do what you thought you were going to do as a child? Some people do. Other people don't. Uh, you know, real quick, raise your hand if, if, it's complete, if you're doing something completely different than what you thought you were going to do as a child. So that's most of us, okay. Um, when I was young, I assumed I was going to own a grocery store like my father did. My father owned a grocery store. It was started by my great-grandfather. My grandfather then took it over. You've probably heard me talk about it. I grew up in a grocery store. I worked in a grocery store as a kid. They let me start work. I had to wait till I was five before I could start working because that's how it works when you own a family business. You know, the rest of the culture has to wait till they're 14, but you get to start at five. So I started at five. That's when I was allowed to start stocking shelves, and I thought I was going to own a grocery store someday like my father did. And um, there was also a, a deli counter and a meat market that was part of it. And I remember looking at that as a child and be like, yeah, maybe I'll cut meat. And then as I was a teenager, it was my job to clean the meat department at the end of every day. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to do this. <laughs> like, I don't want to do this. That, that was a little hard for, for me to take. Um, but in my teenage years, I realized, you know, I really like the entrepreneurial side of things. I, I, I don't want to own a grocery store, though. And at that time, if you asked me what I wanted to do, I was a little bit mixed, but I would tell you, I think I either want to teach history or I want to be a radio DJ or I want to own a chain of self-service car washes, which I know sounds ridiculous, but that was really in my mind and really in my heart. And sometimes when I drive past them, I look very longingly at them and I'm like, maybe. Um, But the Lord made it clear to me partway through my time in college, while I was actually preparing to be a history teacher, he made it very clear to me during that season that I was going to become a pastor. And uh, I had to wrestle with that change of thought because that wasn't my original plan. But he made it clear to me and he created a desire in my heart for me to do that. And because he's full of grace, he also allows me to do some of the other things that I had in mind to do as well. He lets me teach. 
He's allowed me to be a radio DJ. I did that for a time when I was up in Northeast PA, and now in this world of digital media, I get to do it in a different way. And he allows me to do some entrepreneurial activities on the side. I don't own a car wash, but I get to do other things. And the nice thing about the other things, the pipes don't freeze, right? I think about that. I'm like, maybe I don't want to own a car wash. Those, they have frozen pipes. But here, I know you wanted to know all that, all right? So you're welcome. But here you have Simon, Peter, right? And you have Andrew, and you have James, and you have John. And it tells us they were fishermen, like many people in their community and like their families happened to be. And when they were children, they probably assumed that this is what they were going to do with their lives. And, and when they became adults, I'm certain that they were pretty confident that they were going to be spending the rest of their lives floating out there on the water of the Sea of Galilee, pulling in nets of fish, and, uh, and, you know, processing those fish and selling those fish and feeding their families that way. And some days, if you ask them, I'm sure it felt like a great life. You know, there's some days that there's nothing in the world I think I'd rather than to just be out on a boat on a beautiful day, just enjoying floating on the water, fishing, doing things like that. But then other days, I suspect that they probably had their finger to their head, scratching it a little bit, thinking, do you suppose there's more to life than this? I imagine they kind of went back and forth like all of us do, and then here you have Jesus showing up, and he invites them to follow him. And he told these fishermen that he would make them what? He says, I will make you what? Fishers of men. You're fishermen, but I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now, that's a big change from what they were used to, but certainly that statement must have aroused their curiosity. He's going to do what? Like, he's going to do, I'm going to become fisher, a fisher of men? What does that mean? So they leave their family at least working with them, right? They leave their family businesses, and they leave their chosen professions, and, uh, and they accepted Jesus' invitation, the Scripture tells us. And for the next three years of their life, what do they do? They travel with Jesus. They serve with Jesus. He disciples them. He shows them what it's like to lead, what it's like to teach, what it's like to care for people. They, they take this all to heart. They're experiencing this and seeing this. They take it all to heart. And then after Jesus ascended back to heaven, what did they do? They carry on his mission. And they share his gospel as far and wide as the Spirit of God empowers them to do so. And then ultimately, they gave their lives for this task. And all of them, except for for John, were executed. And you would look at that. And I wonder sometimes when we think about that, if we look at that and we say, you know, what a sad thing. That was because these guys, you know, other than John, they you would look at that and say their lives were taken from them relatively young. What do you think? Do you think? Do you think that's a sad thing? You think they were sad in the midst of all this? In one respect, it's you would say that's unfortunate that the culture treated them that way and and uh, executed them. But in another sense, it's not quite as sad as maybe we would think it is because these men during their lives got to experience what it's like to have a sense of purpose about what they do. They knew Jesus, they were trained by him, and they lived with a deep conviction that they were being sent into the world to point people to him. This was in their mind firmly. They knew what it felt like to have such a deep sense of mission to their lives and what they were called to do that they were willing to be in prison, they were willing to be exiled, they were willing to be tortured, they were willing to be executed rather than abandon their calling. That doesn't sound terribly sad to me. You know, when I think about it from that perspective, 
And I look at that and I think, you know, is that how we're approaching life? Like when you think about your life and what, what makes a life count and how a life should be lived, do we have such a deep sense of Christ's calling on our lives that, that we'd be willing to endure the worst that this world could absolutely throw at us rather than abandon the calling that he's placed on us? And, and, and you know, we could look at this and say, all right, you know what, I'm going to go through life as, as a person who realizes that I have been empowered by my Lord to accomplish what will glorify His name is His Spirit empowers me to do so, and I'm going to live with the sense of mission that no matter what this world throws at me, I'm just going to pursue this, and I'm going to pursue it hard until the day I find that my, my final day is here. When I look at that, to go through life with that deep sense of mission and that deep sense of calling and that kind of understanding, I think that's a wonderful thing. I think that's a blessing that most people in this world don't experience. And I think it may be true that for some of us, maybe at some point of your life, that like Jesus did for this, this group of fishermen, maybe at some point in your life Christ is going to ask you to change your vocation. That may happen to some of you. Some of you may have, I, I already told you how he kind of switched up what my plans were, and maybe, maybe some of us will experience him switching up our plans in, in a variety of ways, and if, he, and if he invites you to do that, then just say yes and go for it. But I would suspect that for most of us, that he's not going to ask us to do that. I would suspect for most of us, he's probably not going to ask us to switch up our vocation, but what he is going to give us is a sense of mission and a sense of purpose in our immediate context where we have the privilege to represent him well in whatever field, in whatever vocation, in whatever community, in whatever sphere of influence you find yourself in. I actually like what Charles Spurgeon once said about this. Let me read this for us. He said, let every man abide in the calling wherein he is called, unless there be to him some special call from God to devote himself to the ministry. So again, the Lord calls you to switch things up and go in a direction of ministry that, that he's clearly outlined for you. Be obedient to him. Go for it, right? Even if you don't have all the details ahead of time, just go for it. But Spurgeon says, you know what? That doesn't always work out quite that way. He says, in our current context, he says, go on with your employment, dear Christian people, and do not imagine that you are to turn hermits or monks or nuns. He said, you would, you would not glorify God if you did so act. Soldiers of Christ are to fight the battle out where they are. So just think about that. Do you think it's an accident that the Lord has you where you are? I don't think it's an accident. I don't think the Lord, there's no accidents with the Lord, right? He sends us into every field, every vocation, every location as his ambassador. So again, if he switches things up for you, say yes and go for it. But most likely, for most of us, he's not going to do that. For most of us, he's going to call us to be faithful right where he's already opened up doors for us to represent him. And if that's the case... Let him do his work through you in the midst of the context that you're in. Let me say this as we finish up. Here we see Jesus transforming lives. We're going to see that all throughout the Gospel of Mark. And I just want to invite us to do this. Wherever you are in your walk with him, if you know him from a distance, if you know him up close, if you don't feel like you know the Lord at all, I just want to invite you to allow him to do this in your life. Let him transform you. Let him transform your thinking. Let him transform your living. Let him transform your believing. Let him transform you. Don't give in to the tempting lies of Satan. Recognize that Christ gives us the truth. Satan gives us lies. We're invited to repent and believe the gospel daily. So trust the leading of God the Father. 
Rest in the work that God the Son has accomplished on your behalf. Rely on the empowerment of God the Holy Spirit as you honor the work that He's doing in your life and as you complete the mission that He's given you in this world. Let Him transform you and ask Him to give you that sense of purpose that He gave the disciples so that we're going about life in such a way that we realize, you know what, this isn't about me, is it? It's not about my ambitions. It's not about my checklist of things I hope to do. It's not about, you know, the list of things I hope to accomplish before I die. It's really about using whatever time the Lord gives me, whether it be brief or long from the world standard, to glorify Him. That's my mission, to trust Him, to walk with Him, to glorify Him, and to make Him known in whatever context He opens up a door for me to speak and represent Him. Our prayer is that the Lord would empower us to do that well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this portion of Scripture today and to think about the things that you've revealed to us in it. Lord, thank you for the ways in which you transform our lives. You take us from being people who lived at a distance from you and who were going about things in their own strength and in their own wisdom, and you show us what it's like to have our lives interrupted in a wonderful and glorious way. Lord, we're grateful for the things that you did in Simon Peter's life, and Andrew's life, and James' life, and John's life, and in the lives of so many, where their, their lives were headed in one direction, and they thought they had things mapped out and planned out. And then you interrupted that script, and you said, here's another option, and they selected the option that you'd given them. They chose to follow you, and you transformed them. They were discipled by you. Lord, we know that throughout the Gospel of Mark, we keep seeing that theme of discipleship, what it looks like to be a man or a woman who is a fully devoted follower of yours. And so, Lord, we pray that that would be our desire as well. We know, Lord, that this world is filled with all kinds of false promises. We know that Satan wants us to believe all sorts of garbage, all sorts of things that that steer us in a direction that is far from you. We see Satan tempting Eve, and we see Adam buying into those lies and rebelling against you, and then we see your son, Jesus Christ, being presented with the same kinds of things, the lust of the flesh, the the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And your son did not give in to the lies of the enemy. But he quoted your word to the deceiver, and the deceiver left. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who understand your word that your word would be firmly implanted in our minds and our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would bring to our memory the things that we've read in your word, and that we would not be prone to deception like we are by nature. That supernaturally, that you would help us to understand the truth of your word and the message of your gospel. And Lord, we're just so grateful for the lives that you've given us. We pray that we would use them to their fullest, whether we're here for a short time or a long time. We pray that we would recognize that it's our mission to glorify your name as we walk through every door that you open up for us. Lord, we're just so grateful for your love. We're grateful for your presence with us. And we're grateful for the fact that you're here with us right now. We commit ourselves over to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Choosing where to pursue higher education is a decision that matters now more than ever. Who will provide an education rooted in biblical principles? Who are the kind of people you want to study with? Located in Langhorne, Pennsylvania, Cairn University is a Christian university that is firmly centered on Christ and His Word. 
as both a graduate and a professor of the new digital media and communication program at Cairn, I know that the kind of education you will receive is one that builds biblically-minded men and women of character. Whether you or your student wants to study business administration, psychology, education, sports management, computer science, or one of the many other program offerings, Cairn will prepare you to be a professional and a servant for Christ. To learn more or to schedule a visit, please visit cairn.edu. That's spelled C-A-I-R-N dot E-D-U. And we look forward to seeing you on campus. Finding uplifting news in today's headlines is often like searching for a needle in a haystack. At the Story Behind podcast, we believe in the power of finding heartwarming tales and are happy to share empowering stories with you every week. Get inspired by the note a waitress received from a patron dining alone. And even hear about how one VIP passenger made a hardworking pilot get emotional before his flight. To start listening to the Story Behind podcast, visit lifeaudio.com 